This episode is brought to you by ShipBob, the global leader in e-commerce fulfillment with locations across North America, Europe, and the United Kingdom. ShipBob offers direct integration to merchants running on Shopify, Wix, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, Amazon, eBay, and Walmart. And they are the only 3PL that is Shopify Plus certified. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify and Klaviyo customers the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 58 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green. And today I spoke with Rachel Cohen, the co-founder and co-CEO of Snow. Snow is a direct-to-consumer homeware company that creates luxury quality pieces at non-luxury prices using cutting-edge technology and the best materials in the world. In the five years since launching, Snow has won many awards, amassed a cult following, and earned industry recognition from notable product experts and publications including Architectural Digest, Fast Company, Forbes, and Vogue, among others. In this episode, Rachel shares with us her journey from growing up in New York with dreams of becoming the next Barbara Walters, to working in real estate investment banking, to realizing that the process of furnishing her new home with her husband was actually a lot more challenging than they thought, which inspired the concept for snow. She talks with us about how she filters for passion, perseverance, and grit throughout her hiring process, the numerous challenges she has faced in building snow, and how creating an immersive brand experience resulted in a powerful press launch event. Tune in to hear all this and more. If you like what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your amazing story in building snow. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Uh, So where are you from originally? What was childhood like for you? Originally, I grew up in New York in the tri-state area um, in the suburbs right outside the city. And childhood for me was, uh, I mean, it was great. I think I'm really humbled and thankful where we had almost like, uh, 
very normal or what you picture as like typical normal childhood. Um, it was myself and my sister, you know, my parents, my parents are both educators. Are so you the oldest had, or the youngest? I'm the oldest. Okay. I'm the oldest. I'm but four how many years older than my sister. So cool. it's been four years. So we used to joke. It's a little bit of a difference when you're younger. Now we're so close, but we used to joke that I was her mother when she was little. Cause I was like always taking care of her or like trying to interject and do that. Yeah. <laughs> when my parents were probably like, it's okay. Just take a step back. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> yeah. So it was the two of us and we had like a backyard. We would run around. We both played a ton of sports growing up I think that was like a big part of who I was and I think framed a lot of things for me just in terms of you know focus competitive nature what kind of sports Uh, so when I started I started really young in gymnastics actually and I ended up quitting it sounds crazy to say because it seems so young but I did it for eight years and I quit when I was 10 years old so (laughs) it's like when you say that thinking back I don't even remember it yeah um in a sense where it seems like a lifetime ago but it was getting to the stage where you know I'd switched gyms to be with you know coaches who were that much more competitive and could help get to the next level and it was like all the things that you hear about the sport that are kind of out there with just in terms of intensity and what they were telling me I could eat at the time and what Mm. not to eat. And it was very intense. And so I think to my parents' credit, they didn't push me forward and they saw the change of, you know, me being unhappy or getting, you know, where I used to love what I was doing than almost having this like change and being scared to go into the gym at that age and things like that and recognize that. So I give them a lot of credit. So then I kind of switched and, you know, soccer became my sport after that, but I did like soccer, basketball, volleyball and track in high school. Um, But soccer was more competitive. I would travel around. I kind of loved it. So soccer is pretty cool. Did you play in high school? I did. I did. So I played in high school and then I played on, you know, different travel teams where we would travel around and travel to tournaments all around the country. Um, So was very into it for a period of time. Um, And then kind of gave it up cold turkey going into college to (laughs) my parents' chagrin. Yeah. Well, it's a whole other level in college too. So it's, you know, depending on your high school, my high school was so competitive that I was like, ah, I'm not going to be trying to do this soccer thing right now. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. It was super competitive and I loved it at the time. And then, you know, by the time I was getting to college, I think it's like after so many years, I was burnt out in the sense of, you know, can I just have a little bit more of a laid back existence in college? And, and I figured, you know, I wasn't going to play professionally. So yeah, I might as well call it at that time. So what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were younger? What did you think, what was your dream? I wanted to be the next Barbara Walters. That was for me when I was younger. I wanted to be an anchor woman. Um, I think I was always very inquisitive and I love the fact that she was meeting so many different people and personalities. And um, I don't know why in particular I necessarily latched on to Barbara Walters, but we always joke about it as a family. That's what I used to say when I was younger. Because you were what, practicing as a kid or like, you know, what were you doing as a kid that 
you know, I don't know, you were gearing up for it. Were you like practicing at all? <laughs> yeah, I I don't know if I was practicing per se, but I guess I used to talk about it a lot that I was really mm. interested. And I think I'd like to think my personality has changed a little bit. I was, I see video home videos now and I was very much a ham. And mm. so I think that kind of encompassed that. And I've, as I've gotten older in a way, um, I'm still outgoing, but I recharge by turning inward. So it's a very different type of energy. So mm. I know they say like what your personality is when you're younger kind of often sticks with you, but, um, I think I've evolved that side a little bit. So I think that's where like the, uh, interest was though at the time. That's kind of interesting. I feel like looking back, maybe I was a little shy as a kid and I'm much more outgoing now than I was. So I agree with that, that you kind of can evolve in different ways growing up. Yeah, Um, definitely. So what kind of first kind of jobs did you have? You know, did you have a job in high school or was your first job? Yeah, I had a bunch of different jobs throughout high school, like worked in a camp with kids as a camp counselor. I would say that was my first job when I was like 14, 15, you know, doing that. Mm -hmm. But then my first real job, um, I actually worked at Nordstrom in high school, uh, which interestingly, I didn't have necessarily a full interest in, you know, making retail my career path at the time. And little did I know that it would come full circle in terms of a lot of things that I was learning. And, you know, a lot of the things that Nordstrom has set in terms of customer experience, customer values, and the mission that I think ended up being really valuable for me to learn. But I worked in the shoe department, I was, you know, running up and down in the back. And I think, more than anything, it just teaches you work ethic. It teaches you, you know, value of earning your own paycheck. That's really important at a young age. Uh, I, at least I like to think. Um, so it, it kind of set a lot of foundational pieces for me that I didn't necessarily anticipate. And from there, you went to college. Looks like University of Michigan. Why did you choose University of Michigan? Yeah. So Michigan for me was this really good balance of work hard, play hard. It was really rigorous academically. I think it's like this school where it's almost like under the radar where people are super competitive about it academically, but nobody wants to admit it because everyone wants to make it like, oh, I really like to like go out and party and do all of these things. Um, But I think it was a good balance in the sense and going back to like my root of sports and camaraderie. And there was definitely that aspect to the school and, you know, just the campus itself fell in love with the campus. It's beautiful in Ann Arbor. Um, So I thought it was like the perfect, place to go to school I thought it was kind of interesting the first football game I experienced it literally seemed like it was out of a movie where you were walking down the street and all the tailgating the tailgating people (laughs) are on top of roofs and throwing footballs like over your head and it's just like very much out of a movie that's funny when I was in college at University of Delaware I had a uh, boyfriend that went to um Penn you University of Pennsylvania, but no, mm-hmm. no Penn State. Sorry, I'm going to get confused. Penn State, which is obviously like a huge tailgating situation. I'm sure very similar to very similar University enough. of Michigan, and it is a whole scene. That whole tailgating situation is like a culture of yes. its own. 
Yes. And it's very cult-like and everyone gets very into (laughs) it. Um, But it's a lot of fun too, I think at the time. Yes. So So that's kind of how I ended up there. And you studied economics and what did you um, end up doing? Did you have any jobs or internships while you were in college? Um, I wasn't working at the time while I was in college, then, you know, summers when I actually thought that I wanted to go into law for a little bit. So I worked at the ADA's office a couple of summers working directly for um, different district attorneys. And I think in a good way, you know, internships are supposed to expose you and see if you want to go down that path or you don't want to go down that path. And for me, I realized that it wasn't necessarily the right path for me. Um, So, you know, I think it was valuable in the sense that it taught me, okay, now I know what I don't want to do and how do I figure out from there what I want to do. Um, And that was a little bit harder. And I think, you know, took a little bit of a circuitous route, but my first, then when I graduated from college, I went into real estate, um, the real estate finance. I worked for a real estate investment trust, SL Green, and managed a subsidiary for them that at the time was very unknown, but it was basically their incubator for the equivalent of what WeWork was. So it was just several years prior to that. But for me, the biggest thing that I loved about that job and that opportunity was it was like this little, um, it was very autonomous from the larger company. And it was, to me, laying a lot of the foundations for what I would understand as entrepreneurship and what I liked about it, you know, growing a business, how to operate it, looking at all different facets. How do you market it? How do you look at the design and build out of the spaces? How does everything come together? Um, So I think it was really valuable and, you know, again, laying the groundwork and the foundation for what would then ultimately lead to my path at Snow. So what what made you decide to get your MBA? Yeah, so I think at the time, so I had been at SL Green for five years and I was trying to figure out what was next for me. I knew, again, what was piquing my interest, but it wasn't, you know, something that was pulling at me that I knew, okay, I definitively want to do that. And I think a lot of people end up going to get their MBA because it's like, you might have a great foundation and, you know, one or two jobs out of college, but you're still kind of trying to figure it out and Mm -hmm. what that path would be. So that's why I went back to school. I wasn't sure if I wanted to start my own thing, but thought that would be a good place to, you know, lay the foundation again and build on it. Um, and that's what led me back. And then obviously it, it, it sort of led me in this path. So while I was there, um, I was pursuing different opportunities within real estate, within hospitality as well, still doing recruiting for some larger companies, but I worked for another, uh, real estate investment trust in the hospitality space. And I, I tried to kind of look at, okay, why am I being drawn to hospitality. Like I was doing the finance side of things. Um, but you know, what was it about it? And, you know, a lot of the things that I felt that I was missing in doing those jobs was the creative outlet where I had a little bit of it at times, but I realized that was really piquing my interest and, you know, the brand side, how do you build a hospitality brand? What is the experience that you create within those environments? And that for me was, 
really interesting. And I think a lot of the things, while totally separate industries, a lot of parallels to to what could be applied for building a brand, quite frankly. So tell us the story. How did it end up happening? What was the um, aha moment when you realized, okay, I want to start building brand and this is what the brand is going to be? Yeah. So I can even one step before that, while I was uh, in school, getting my MBA, I was working on another startup that we never like fully launched. We kind of did a beta and tested it in school, but it was an Indian formal wear startup. So it was something totally different, but there's definitely a market for it and there's still a need out there. So if anyone kind of wants to look at it and go after it, but Again, all of these pieces that kind of led me to Snow, where, again, there were so many aspects of retail that we learned by doing that, the sourcing, you know, we started, you know, I flew to India, was sourcing some of the items, but I think ultimately I realized I wasn't a thousand percent passionate about this particular idea, and I think that was something that was really valuable to learn. And, you know, when I, when we started snow or came up with the idea for snow that I'll tell you about, I really then knew the difference of, okay, you know, this is it, this is the passion that you kind of need to go forward. So the idea came up when Andres and myself, so Andres is my co-founder, but we're also a couple and we met at school and we were graduating and we're setting up our first apartment together in New York when we were moving after school and going through the process, we right away realized how painful it was. And I think what's interesting about the home space is, you know, not until you're thrust into your first apartment in your twenties, do you even really think about it, right? You grow up thinking about fashion, cultivating your style and how you dress yourself at an earlier age often. But for home, you have no idea what your aesthetic is, no idea what's out there. And so, you know, this was the first time that I was a little bit, you know, past that later 20s, actually, you know, just about 30 at the time. And when you really start to care about your home. So, we realized right away that there was a lot of things about the process that were painful. And for starters, it was the trade-off where you were stuck choosing between super high prices and high quality and ubiquitous design and disposable products. And then the other part of it was, it was this overwhelming search. I remember having what felt like thousands of tabs open on our computer, trying to choose the different items. And it's just overwhelming that you feel like there's so much out there that it's almost like the paradox of choice that it seems like there's nothing out there. Cause you're kind right. of just like close your computer and you're like, I'm done. I can't even do this. Yeah. And then for us, it was the brands and, you know, we're also talking, we graduated from business school in 2012. So we came up with the idea a couple of years before we even launched, but the landscape was entirely different at the time. And, you know, for us, the opportunity we saw was to build a brand because the brands that were out there weren't necessarily speaking our language or speaking to us um, for what we wanted in a home brand. And we realized that we weren't alone the more and more we kept digging into it. So what did you want from a home brand that you weren't finding elsewhere? Yeah, so uh, I always remember, so at the time, it was also like 
physical magazines and publications were like still so much more of a thing. And it wasn't even that many years ago. But I remember, you know, looking at these different publications and being these like big sweeping shots in these mansions or these homes that are obviously aspirational and beautiful, but it's almost like nobody lives like that. So everything (laughs) seemed like this idealistic view where there wasn't a realness to it for us, you know, I wouldn't say like a full grit, but like some grit, some movement, some interaction and, and bringing like what happens in the home to life. There's so many things. Like if I think about what great moments are, it's like the dinner parties with friends that went until three in the morning that happen in your home. And, you know, you're sitting there with a bottle of wine and, and creating memories and, you know, starting a family and bringing babies into your home. And like, what does that mean? And everything's not perfect. And I think for us, a big, an initial brand vision that I believe we've stayed true to was that, you know, things get messy, life gets messy. It's okay. Like how do we create a brand and celebrate those moments around it? We'll get right back to our show, but first a word from our sponsors. ShipBob is a tech-enabled 3PL that offers simple, fast, and affordable fulfillment. Unlike most 3PLs that lack sophisticated intuitive tools and use outdated methods, ShipBob's technology is modern, intelligent, and designed to give you full transparency over your backend operations. Fulfillment is incredibly time-intensive, so just hand it over to the best of the best. With a network of fulfillment centers across the globe with new locations continuously underway, ShipBob lets you split inventory across locations to reduce shipping costs and transit times. Get your products picked, packed, and shipped, and earn $500 in free shipping credits by going to shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. That's shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. Nasto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nasto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nasto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nasto.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash Stairway to CEO. Malomo is on a mission to help brands create lasting relationships with their customers. Did you know that the average customer tracks their shipments around four to five times per order? That's a lot. Why not use that time with excited customers to drive sales and build your brand with a tool like Malomo? With Malomo, you can use branded shipment emails and order tracking pages to drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content, all while cutting support tickets by 50%, simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. That's gomalomo, G-O-M-A-L, omo.com slash steroid CEO. Absolutely. And so how did you start testing and validating the idea? 
Did you guys do surveys? Like, how did you realize other people wanted this same type of brand? Yeah, so we definitely did a lot of that to see what was out there. We did a ton of competitive research, you know, like obviously ordered from every company you could think of. We went into every store. We also pretended to register at every single store and speak to the salespeople because you get like a ton of information that way. And I think that kind of led us to help crystallize where we wanted to launch within the market. I'm a big believer that, you know, Speaking to people, I kind of think about it the same way we do now at Snow, where it's like our customer experience team, our retail teams, speaking to customers is the most valuable information you can get. And, you know, at the time, it was kind of the same way, speaking to store associates, speaking to others who would be potential customers. Um, because you could look at data and you could look at spreadsheets. And, you know, that's definitely my background. And I'm very data driven. But I think there's a lot of things that you can't get out of that. Um, and you have to kind of piece together the art and the science. Um, and then, and then there's a little bit of trusting your gut with, okay, you know, is this enough information that I have where the data is telling me this, but I might not be able to validate it until I launch to the world. And is that okay? And you kind of have to be okay with that. Right. And so when did you feel that kind of validation? Was it after launch? And if so, what was maybe like a metric for success where you're like, okay, this is working. Now we can kind of really roll in with this instead of maybe peel back. Yeah. So Andres and I actually started on the side where we were thinking about like testing more decorative products from artisans around the world. That's in a sense where our mind was going. And when you say validating where we started having these conversations kind of shifted us to home essentials. And, you know, what I like to say, the jeans and white t-shirt of the home, because by speaking to customers, by, you know, doing trunk shows and definitely getting some of these products and seeing what people were saying as you were selling to them and testing things, that's where we were able to perform a little bit of a test and say, this is our aha moment. It's not necessarily that, you know, we want to go in that direction. We know we want to find a solution for the home, but it's really a whole home solution. And it's, you know, building that foundation so that we can simplify the whole experience of shopping for the home as well. That's awesome. So what were some of the first things that you did? It sounds like trunk shows to kind of test with customers. What were some other things? I mean, what did you, what did launching this brand look like? Yeah. So we were testing all of those things in a much smaller capacity. And then when we launched, um, I think for us, while there's different gradients of, you know, having a minimum viable product, can you get that to market? I think we felt strongly again, if you're talking about brand and wanting to make an impact with brand, you could do it in a cost-effective way. It's not that it has to, you know, be, the ultimate vision, but I think we felt you had to put a good enough representation of the brand out there from the start to be able to validate anything because, you know, the three things for us that we thought needed to be differentiated was the product, the brand, and then the experience. So it's very hard to do an MVP and have people have that emotive connection to the brand without getting product in the hands of customers, you know, it's very 
difficult to do that. So when we launched, we definitely launched, I would say, in a more meaningful way. But that was also after two years of research and two years of testing and two years of doing these customer surveys and sourcing and, you know, building out the early employees of our team um, until we got to that point for when we launched. And the name Snow with an E at the end, what made you put an E at the end and, and how did you guys come up with that name? Yeah, for us, Snow, by adding the E, it's a very good point. Um, it became a, a noun, like someone's name that you could kind of build a brand around. But we loved the idea of Snow without the E, what it subliminally would connote. So tranquility, blank canvas, being very clean and crisp. And for us, we were launching with home essentials in four categories. So bed linens, bath linens, and tabletop, dinnerware, flatware, glassware, the cornerstones of what we thought were the home that were non-furniture, all in a neutral palette. So that's where for us, you know, Snow kind of tied it all together where it would be this foundation that you can then mix and match your own personal style on, you could build upon, but it would always kind of be that, that clean foundation. And product development and just, you know, launching a brand in general takes quite a bit of cash. Did you guys raise a family and friends round or how did you kind of, you know, fund the company up until a certain point when you started taking outside investment? Yeah. So at the very beginning, we used uh, what little savings we had after business school. Uh, that kind of wipes a lot out. But we did that for initial production runs, like small things, samples that we could do, we could get off the ground and, you know, being able to iterate and test on product. So I could get a lot into product development and what we were doing at the time. But, you know, it's, if you think about a good example for me is that I always remember and like love thinking about because it's kind of like where we started and how far we've come from product development. But we knew for our hand towel that we wanted to resize it so that it could be the perfect woman's hair towel, but it could also hang at the same length on a towel rack. It would have functionality where it would be lightweight, really quick drying. But if you wrapped it around your hair, then your head, it wouldn't like pull your head back. So <laughs> certain qualities of a luxury towel, but you know, innovating on that. And we were literally buying towels and cutting out the sizes and down to the inch and wrapping it around my head, wrapping it around a friend's head, wrapping it around Andres's head, like literally starting from, you know, you have to start somewhere and this is what we want to recreate and how can we cut it out and get, you know, some sort of product sample that we can then build upon. I think it's funny. I think a lot of people think like, oh, you want to make a hair towel. You just tell the manufacturer that's what you want and they just go do it. But they don't realize that they're like, okay, you want a hand towel, tell us everything about what this hand towel is so we can make it for you. And then you have to come up with every single thing yourself. <laughs> so exactly. That's awesome exactly. that you're cutting it at home and testing it out. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, we were doing a whole host of things like that. Um, so we used what little capital we had to do that at the beginning. And then we raised a round of friends and family uh, that was about six months prior to when we launched. So then we were able to use that initial capital for the, for the inventory that we needed. We brought on a couple of 
key early team members, one of which it, who's been with us from the beginning, who's our COO now, but uh, her name is Erica Peppers, and she has deep expertise in home and supply chain and product development. So I think for us, it was also coming in with a fresh perspective where we hadn't been in the industry and questioning everything. Why is it done this way? How do we change it? Does that make sense? But then partnering with people who also have the expertise to help, you know, bring it to life and get it off the ground, such as Erica. Um, And then, you know, we used it for initial marketing and some PR. And um, I think one of one of the things that we did out of the gate uh, that kind of set the stage for what we would do for our retail stores in the future was when we launched, we did a big press event, but we really wanted to bring snow to life in a physical manifestation. And we rented out this what was an amazing loft, just this blank space in Chelsea and just kind of recreated it, what a snow home could look like. And, you know, we had a chef cooking. The whole idea is like every day, right? So his take on eggs, but also then something fancy to pair with it with a cocktail and fun. And we kind of brought it to life and did a press launch event that I think, you know, ended up being really successful and helped us get, you know, some great, press out of the gate that I think then just helped build credibility from the start in terms of, okay, it's not just us saying, you know, this product quality is X or, you know, this brand is doing X, but by having third-party publishers saying that it definitely helped. So do you think that's a really good strategy? Would you recommend doing that? Because I think, um, you know, a lot of brands that are launching when they think of their press strategy are just blasting out a bunch of emails. So, you know, you created an entire experience that brought them in to experience the brand from a whole nother perspective. Do you think that that's like the better way to go? Obviously that was pre-COVID, but um, (laughs) is that something you'd recommend? I think so. I think, you know, depending on the type of product, but... I think often, you know, immersing anyone, right? Like we thought about it from a press standpoint and it's kind of like how we think about a customer. And that's why I tied it to a retail store. It's like, how can anyone experience the product and the brand? And for us, we were choosing product that truly was the highest quality, but you know, how do you convey that out of the gate from photography and from videos and all of those things? There are certain, until you get the product in people's hands, there's that tactile nature. And then they really understand, wow, I'm holding this plate. It's super white, lightweight, but so durable. And I love the form and, you know, the same thing with sheets and towels. And I think these tactile experiences plus if you could create that immersive brand experience, I think there's, there's kind of no replacement for that. Yeah. And so how big is your team now? And what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned in hiring a team? Yeah, a ton. Um, I think, so our team now is about 20 people. Um, We have fluctuated over the past year with COVID specifically around, we had two stores when COVID started. So we pulled back on stores. Luckily, one of our leases serendipitously was up right at the start of it. Mm. Um, So it kind of allowed us to pause in a way um, with two of our stores. 
but um, some lessons that we've learned from hiring people. Uh, I think first and foremost, our team and our people are our most important, important asset. And I think anyone is remiss to think you can launch a company, build a brand and do everything on your own. And, you know, we've needed to, and we've been so lucky to find people who are just as passionate about what we're building. I think that passion is something that is, palpable and you know then when you have passionate people on the team and they're recruiting and they're interviewing they're looking for other people who share that passion with them so it's kind of that snowball effect um i think the other thing is perseverance and and grit and it's those are things that are are very hard to interview for right yeah i was just going to um, say how do you filter for that those things passion grit, perseverance? Yeah, I would say we, because, you know, we're not talking about capabilities, right? I think capabilities, if you need like uh, an expertise in what you're doing, that's kind of like table stakes. But then once you get past that level and you say, okay, this person's really capable, how do you then differentiate around who you want to bring into the team? Um, I think there's just like a, a a bunch of ways in which we try and get to know someone and we try not to rush the process. And, you know, again, speaking pre-COVID, we've been hiring in a COVID landscape now too, which I could talk about that's a little bit different, but we would bring everyone into the office. We would have them come to a social event or a happy hour at the office, um, junior, senior, it didn't really matter what position, because I think in those settings, then you're having more touch points with the team. So it's often, you know, it needs to be a fit from both sides. And then they're getting to see what the culture is like, what the team is like, get different viewpoints, not just hearing from the person who's hiring them or even who they'd be working closely with. And if, you know, with a lean team, you're working cross-functionally, how do you then, you know, get an understanding for that? And I think by putting people in these scenarios, you get the cultural fit, but you also start to see just in conversations because people let their guard down, right? And they they kind of talk about what's important to them. And it's not always the perfect answer that you're, when you're sitting, you know, in the conference room and telling someone about, it's kind of like you find out the root of what drives them. And, you know, do we want to work with them? Do we want to, you know, bring them into the team and it's something really important to us. So that's always been a, a big way that we try and filter for those types of characteristics. That's a pretty cool way of getting to know someone, I guess, a little differently so that they're, the pressure's a little off. They're not in this kind of like, you know, sterile interview thing. Not that your interviews are sterile, but you know, they can definitely yeah. be a pressure cooker for a lot of people. So that's a really cool idea to have them come to an event, meet the team outside of just their, you know, direct report or whoever. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I know that you, you know, fundraised a family and friends round. I think you've also fundraised from VCs. Can you tell us about some of the challenges you faced in fundraising? Yeah. So we've raised capital from some venture capital, um, some more strategics in the retail and home space and raising capital is definitely a journey. I think, you know, when we were first starting out, it's amazing how green you could be in the entire process. Um, yeah. 
And I think especially as a female, you know, a lot of the things that you hear where there's a lot of stereotypes and, you know, where it's much more challenging for women to raise capital, um, you kind of see it play out in real life and you almost can't believe it. And, you know, I came from a world, I was working in real estate finance. It was definitely like an old boys club. So had experienced that and experienced a lot of things early on in my career around that. That could be a whole other conversation. You're like, I've already been down this road. This is going to be fine. It's not going to (laughs) happen to me. Right. Exactly. Um, But I think there are just like small things that you come across in those conversations that I, you know, we were surprised about. So for instance, I oversee our finance operations and, you know, what we like to call business development. And Andres runs our creative marketing uh, and that side of the business. And we both kind of intersect on the product side of different capacities, but we would go into these meetings and I kid you not, every single meeting when it would come to design or anything, any creative question, again, it was like at the very beginning when we had barely launched. So even anything that was about the brand wasn't really out there. And everyone would direct their questions to me when it had to do with creative and marketing. (laughs) And anytime there was anything around like funding or the numbers or operations, it was always directed at Andres. And we both were just like blown away that, you know, we're not talking that this was the 1950s. We were like, how is this still happening in this day and age? But it's true. And it was happening time and time again. And people were always surprised and it would be like, oh, you're the designer, right? (laughs) Right. You're female. You must be creative. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Like numbers, what's a number? Right. <laughs> Let me talk to the man about the numbers. You're like, um, that's my job actually. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And honestly, to Andres's credit, I think it's really important to have, you know, when you get into that conversation and like building out a team and like then, you know, you think about how all of these experiences shape the culture and what we want the team to look like. We, you know. Andres was very aware about that. Like when we came out of that first meeting, to be quite honest, I hadn't even noticed because we were talking about that was, I was so used to it in my career in the past where I hadn't even noticed it at first. And he was the one who pointed it out to me. So I think it's really important that you need to, you know, have both sides and, you know, everyone kind of aware of what's going on. Yeah. So what other things did you kind of oversee? You mentioned kind of, you know, being green when you first fundraise, and that's true for every first time founder trying to fundraise. You learn so much from all the things that you realize you're doing wrong. What are some of those things? Just so listeners, you know, that might be out there, entrepreneurs that are trying to fundraise um, can kind of hear what to look out for. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing is you go into these conversations and you try and over-prepare, or at least I did, and, you know, we did, and that was kind of my personality, Um, over-prepare for, like, every question, every permutation for, speaking of the numbers, like, what could they ask about this? What could they ask about that? I think it's important. You need to know the fundamentals. You need to know what is the size of the opportunity. What are you going after? What are the nuts and bolts of your business, you know, down to the last detail. But I think the biggest thing is, you know, also thinking through what's your vision. 
Like, what is your ultimate vision for the company? How do you see yourself getting there? How do you, what are the steps in between? How do you start to envision that? And then how do you learn to articulate that? Because at the beginning, it's a very big thing to try and figure out how to articulate because there's so many things coming at you. Um, It's very different for us to be able to envision it and articulate it five years into launching versus pre-launch when we're having these conversations too. And then I think the other thing is it's important. And, you know, I don't know if this sounds cliche, but you know, 99% of the time you're going to hear no. And that doesn't mean that you don't have a good concept and that you don't have a valid concept. And how do you continue to question and improve perhaps certain fundamentals of what you're thinking about and how you craft your story to be able to articulate that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you just give up and say, well, this isn't a good idea. Because oftentimes you hear, you know, the best businesses had such trouble fundraising. I think like, you know, one of the more public ones is Peloton and, you know, the story of how it was impossible for them to raise capital and, you know, now look at them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I wonder what were some of the things that investors would say no? Like, what was the reason for saying no? Well, if we're talking about, you know, gender playing a role in this, I think it is hard when you are, you know, for us launching something that traditionally males weren't getting excited about. So a lot of times where we knew you know, you could kind of tell right away if we brought the product and we were bringing product anywhere, we would literally tote product to coffee meetings. We would take out this giant, you know, tote bag and literally pull out a bedding sample, a towel. We would have flatware out on the table and dinnerware, like what you, your whole pit, kind of picnic. picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like we're having a like picnic actually. Bag. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of times, you know, if, the investor was male, he would say, well, I'm not really the one who shops for these things. I I have to ask my wife, or I have to ask my partner, or maybe I could show my kids and my daughter, you know, would have an understanding. And I think at the end of the day, you know, the same way founders have to be passionate about what they're doing, investors have to be excited and passionate. So -hmm. I think that was definitely a challenge and a roadblock um, that we faced early on. And so how did you, I guess, overcome that roadblock or did you just kind of say, okay, did you get better at saying next, you know, like getting rid of the meeting and and shutting that door and then moving on? Yeah. And I think that's what you learn over time. And that's where, when you're, when I was saying you're green at the beginning and, you know, not sure because you don't want to close every door, you start to read, you know, what those dynamics are. And then you also realize the importance of bringing investors on who will be your partners and who are excited about the business, but also know that there's going to be challenging times. And, you know, so you start to have a two-way conversation and you realize, okay, it's not just them asking me conversations. Conversations. It's how can we interview them in the same way to know if they're someone that we want to take capital from who will be there with us as we go through the journey, because ultimately it's a journey. So how did you filter for investors? Like what's your filter? Yeah. How did you kind of identify those type of investors? I think, you know, 
the same way we were talking about people. It's like, how do you get to know people? How do you have multiple conversations, not just have one conversation? How do you meet with them multiple times? How do you back channel and figure out who's worked with them, who knows them, what are they like to work with? Um, you know, once you have them on your side, what is what does that look like? Do they basically want to, you know, rewrite everything you're doing? Do they want to help guide you and give some autonomy? Like I think each investor and each investment thesis is different. So I think it's important to kind of do your own homework, not just necessarily what you can find on a website. Um, right. Did you talk to portfolio companies? We spoke to portfolio companies often, but it was never asking for the introduction via the investor, because, you know, a lot of times it's kind of like a reference call, then you're not putting anyone in front of us who would say anything bad. So, you know, we wanted to know the good and the bad. So it was kind of like doing, digging up all the dirt that we could in. So we knew what we were getting ourselves into. Yeah. With the partnership. So what's been one of the most challenging moments in building your business? I know there's lots of challenges. I'm sure COVID had its own set of challenges, but, you know, thinking back to a few of these different big challenges that really were a bit scary, perhaps, um, what were they? Yeah, there's so many along the way. Um, and I think one of, one of the things that we always talk about or like to talk about is, you know, it's not always rosy and peaches and cream. And I think the, the challenge is often, you know, the stories you hear or hear that are published or, you know, you don't hear the backstories or the hard work or the grit that goes into it. I mean, there are so many things I can think of. Like our first Black Friday, there was a flood in our warehouse where there was literally water pouring down from the ceiling. Like, I kid you not, stuff that you cannot make up that when you're dealing with physical inventory. And I remember I was standing, I was at the store at the time, we had a pop-up in Soho and got a call from our team where they said there are buckets of, there's buckets of water coming down from the ceiling. And it's just the inopportune times, right? right? And how do you salvage? How do you course correct? Was there a leak in the roof or something? Like, how does that happen? There we had, we were in this giant building where there was a ton of different, you know, warehouses Our uh, our warehouse was in, is in Brooklyn, but it was a different facility at the time. And yeah, just the pipes from the floor above basically froze and burst. And then we're coming down through our ceiling and we couldn't even get in touch with anyone from the building besides the security guard because it was Thanksgiving weekend, basically. So oh my <laughs> gosh. I mean, there's challenges like that. Um, there's also the story of um, our first run of flatware when, you know, we, we have our name branded as snow and we signed off on all the product samples. And then this is actually a story that our team knows, but we don't tell often. And we, I think forget about it because it was so long ago before launch. Um, it, the way the brand looked, it looked like the E was an F. So it kind of looked like snouf. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So we had 
thousands of sets of flatware that was leading up to launch that we didn't know what to do with. And, you know, when we were talking about, we, you know, had very little capital or raised friends and family at the time, basically had to sell suppliers on the dream where, you know, we needed to work with these luxury suppliers who believed in what we were doing the same Mm -hmm. way we were selling investors. And, we also had to make a call on what do we do? Cause we can't set a precedent that, you know, this is the quality we put out, but we didn't, they, I mean, our partner manufacturer totally understood. They didn't know how it made it past their own quality control, but then we had to physically pull from thousands of sets, the knives out of all of the flatware to send it back to them to then be redone so yeah it's kind of those back yeah Yeah. so I think there's so many challenges like that along the way that I think that no one talks about no one nobody talks about and it's important and that's why I asked the question is because you know these are the things that I think a lot of aspiring founders and entrepreneurs don't think about you know they think it's this kind of rosy path to creating product in a beautiful brand. And there's just so many things that go wrong that you wouldn't believe, you know, just like yeah. with the F instead of an E. I mean, that's really <laughs> annoying. You know, how does that even happen? <laughs> totally. But totally. This, is, this is a very normal story. Like this happens all the time with every, every company has a story like this. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we could go on and I'm sure every company can, because it's definitely a journey. Like I said. Yeah. So what's been the most challenging um, part about being a leader? Like, how have you evolved personally and professionally? How have you grown as a leader? Yeah, I would like to think that I've grown a lot. I think, but I would say I'm never done growing and learning as a leader. Um, And there's always more that I want to and can be doing. I think. one of the biggest things is, well, it's a number of things. I think the biggest thing as a leader um, you have to have in your team and everyone you bring on is trust. And, you know, we were talking about how do you, how do you recruit for certain qualities? But, you know, once you get past that process and people are on the team, I think, you know, trust is the biggest thing because, we have to trust people to put their all into everything they're doing to, you know, put themselves out there. And I think the biggest thing I've learned and grown around that is seeing how hard our team works, what they do, what they've been able to accomplish with, you know, seemingly very little resources, you know, building out stores until 4 a.m. before launches photo shoots that our team has done in our apartments, you know, we building out a whole beach for our beach towels where we're not on a beach and it's sand and, you know, the ingenuity and creativity. Um, I, so I think it's humbling. I think it's just humbling, like giving people the freedom and ability to do things and stretch their own creativity. I think what I've learned is I'm really humbled by, you know, what people can and will achieve for the brand. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. You know, when it's your company and you've spent so much time and energy kind of getting it off the ground. And then all of a sudden you have these amazing people that are helping you do the same thing. And they're really passionate about it. 
that's an amazing feeling. Totally. And I remember looking around again, pre-COVID, we had a retreat in the fall of 2019 where, uh, so we're based, our team's based in Manhattan and we went up to the Catskills, you know, two hours away and had a whole team retreat and everyone was there. And I remember just looking around and being like, I can't believe we've grown to, you know, look around at the team for who's there. We were sitting around packing boxes out of Andras and my apartment at the beginning, you know, just, I think it's important to, and we were constantly going and trying to achieve the next thing and setting ambitious goals. And, you know, it's, it's important to take a step back and I will be the first to say it's, you have to remind yourself and it's hard to do all the time, but just to see like everything the team's accomplished and take a pause. Yeah. So before we wrap up, do you have any other final advice for, you know, the listeners out there that are thinking of um, building and growing a business? Yeah, I think the biggest thing whenever I get asked this question is, you know, it goes back to, again, you can't over-prepare for, you know, what you're about to embark on and, you know, all the things that happen or all the things that go wrong, you know, they're going to happen. It's part of the journey. I think the the qualities that I think are most important um, are perseverance and resilience. I don't know, you're you doing this podcast um, must hear that often All in the, the sense time. that you you literally have to walk break down walls, walk through them, around them, over them, and, you know, have the ability to say, okay, this was a bad day, or maybe a really bad day, and things didn't go our way. But how do you kind of sleep it off, and wake up the next day with some renewed optimism, and confidence that you could get through it, and there's always a solution. Um, And never, never take no for an answer. So what's next for snow? What can we expect to see? Yeah, we're, we're at a really exciting time. I think for us, we're excited to build back up on our physical retail experiences. You know, we talked a little bit about that physical manifestation of the brand. We've tested it with different experiences in the past. And, you know, now that we're getting to seemingly what looks like the end of COVID, you know, really looking to build out that strategy um, and take it to the next level, new product categories. We've been doing a ton of customer surveys and research. We, I think, ambitiously launched with four categories out of the gate and, you know, since expanded within those categories and introduced new products, new colorways, new materials, but we really have a vision to be the destination for home for this next generation of consumers. And that means new categories and new exciting products. So we're really excited to to launch some of those that we've been cooking up for a long time. Awesome. I'm excited to check it out. Thanks so much for your time and sharing your awesome story. And um, thanks for being on the show. Thanks again for having me. It was a lot of fun. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing. Thank you.